It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Galatians 5.1 Just a good old boy, trying to be a good old man, out here learning on the fly, trying to do the best I can. Hello and welcome to the Faithful Fatherhood Podcast. I am Brett Etheridge, co-host of the podcast, joined as always by Perry Hughes. Perry, how are you this morning? What's up, Brad? I'm doing fantastic. Um, I've been digging ditches yesterday, which <laughs> I don't know. You don't normally think of that as being awesome, but I have to tell you, I'm really thankful because I've been dealing with this uh, disc issue in my back for a couple of years, this back injury. And I did not ever think I would come to the day where I'm saying I'm really grateful. I was able to run a shovel and a, and a digging bar you know, for six hours yesterday. Um, but I am, I'm thankful for that. You know, I'm able to move and dig and, and not be uh, crippled, you know, in pain today because of it. I was going to ask. So the, the real question is, how do you feel the next day? So you were able to get out of bed this morning? <laughs> yeah, I felt great hopping out of bed. I will tell you my hands, uh, you know, I've been, I've been running a keyboard uh, and a pen for a long time now and <laughs> haven't been doing physical labor as my daily job for many years. So my hands are actually feeling it quite a bit yeah. today. <laughs> <laughs> got to rework those calluses. Yeah, I got some sissy hands I need to deal with. <laughs> and let's bring on our guest for this episode, Will West. Will, welcome to the show. Gentlemen, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Well, it's good to have you. And I, you, you talk for a living. So to give us an extra, however long this is going to be, 45 minutes to an hour of your time where you're going to be uh, stretching those golden pipes. We we appreciate that time as well. And we are going to talk about, well, really just Will's story. Um, and, and I'm not going to give too much of it away, Will, because it's your story to tell. But we, we're going to talk about addiction. We're going to talk about overcoming addiction specifically, perhaps, but also just challenges in general and how to handle that as fathers, how to how to walk through some of that ourselves as men if if we're struggling in those areas. And so so again, we'll we'll get there. This is this is a topic I've been excited to talk with you about, will, though, because uh, it, it certainly hits home for me. A lot of our listeners will know that, that our two oldest boys are adopted. And the reason we stepped in initially to take custody of them and and eventually adopt them was because their biological parents were, were gripped by addiction to the point where they couldn't care for their children. And so it's something that I saw firsthand, but I still don't know a whole lot about. I'm not sure I would know how to handle it the right way. Uh, in certain aspects. And so very curious, again, to sort of hear your story, but your father as well. Why don't you start by, tell us a little bit about your family. Yeah, I, I have uh, my wife, Tiffany, is a uh, business executive here in town, uh, my, my in Knoxville. My uh, my daughter is finishing up at West High School. So she this was a, a daughter that she had from a previous marriage and when she was younger. And so the father was no longer in the picture. I adopted Avery a few years ago. And but I've always kind of been around and kind of been the one that's that's helped raise her. And then finally, when when her father stopped, just at the point we we knew he was never going to come around again. That's where that's where we kind of had the conversations about me adopting her. So I've been able to adopt her. It's been one of, if not the biggest joy of my life uh, on this plane of existence. It's the biggest joy of my life, right? Everything short short of the things that that have happened with the Lord. It's been amazing. I, I love her. And to see her thrive the way that she has right now, 
she's going off to college and she knows like especially when they're at that age and she so she'll go to east tennessee state university studying psychology or psychiatry next year uh um she's done a great job as far as choosing the school choosing the major watching watching them grow and thrive and kind of decide what they want and go for what they want and work hard towards what they want is incredible and so that that's kind of the stage we're in right now where she, she'll graduate later this month and uh her, her 18th birthday is friday so this is Woo-hoo. a big month for yeah this is a huge month for us so i'm i'm just excited i'm excited to be a dad it's it's my favorite thing is to be able to be a dad and so it's just really 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 i know I, I don't know that sounds like a platitude but it's just really cool that's kind of how i look at it yeah, we can literally hear the joy, the pride coming through your voice, which is really cool. Did you, like when you were younger, did you think you wanted to be a dad? Was that an ambition of your heart? Honestly, when when I, that's the thing that got me clean. As far as what what made me, like, you know, repentance is, the, is a change of mind, right? And you, you change your thinking. And I felt like I'd given my life to God, to Christ, you know, and I'd still relapsed a couple of times. And then after that, it was kind of like, you know, as I was spending time with the Lord, I felt like he was showing me repeatedly in the Bible how many times it mentions legacy and how many times it mentions the father and then that that father's child and then who the father is of that child. And, then, and it, it, from Jesus to everyone in Chronicles to it just happens repeatedly that we see Genesis to Jesus, you see fatherhood mentioned and legacy mentioned and how important it clearly is to God that is mentioned in the Bible so many times. And so when I saw that, it kind of changed my thinking. And that was the thing of, I don't, I want to be able to leave a legacy. I want to be able to be a father. Uh, And so that was, that, that was the thing that made me finally say, okay, I'm done with drugs and alcohol was the, the idea of being a dad and the legacy. So that, so I want to, we're going to talk about this. I want to talk about how you're leaving a legacy now with your daughter and clearly you fully embraced fatherhood. She is yours. You view her as such, and you're sending her out into the world now. So I I want to talk about that. Let's start though with your story. Take us back even to your childhood. Was your father present in your life? What was the relationship like the, uh, there? And make us walk, maybe walk us up to the point where you get to that brink of going down a road that leads to the addiction. I my, my dad was a was a Southern Baptist pastor, and so uh, he, he he was around. But it, but especially back then, we didn't know understand a whole lot about work life balance. Right there, those conversations were never really had. So he was around, but he was also around for everyone else, right? So he, anyone, you know, nowadays you'll have like associate pastors and things like that, that will go, you know, every time anybody's sick or anything like that, that wasn't the case back in the eighties. It was, you know, this person's sick, dad's got to go drive and pray for him. This person's having a funeral. This person's grandmother, who's never been to the church has passed away and they've got to go bring a coat, you know what I mean? Uh, A dish to to their house or something like that. And so he wasn't around a ton, but he did his best, Right. I did always know my dad loved me, but I also knew that um, this was a call on his life, and so he was going. He wasn't going to be around as much, um, and, and and that was. And also back then, pastors didn't get paid a whole lot, and so whatever you know, he. I think there was always this need within my dad to feel like I need to work harder and do more, and if I just work harder and do more, we'll have more financially if I were to do that. And so I think he always wanted to kind of push, put himself in 70 or 80 hours a week. But, but he, I knew he loved me. You know what I mean? Like the time that I did get with him was great. 
So I love that. But there, there also is a thing. The PK thing is real. Like, it's very real. Yeah. Because especially sometimes there can be this. If you do something wrong, it's not like you just do something wrong and correct it. You're also reflecting poorly on your family. And you're reflecting, which means you're reflecting poorly on the church. And so that pressure of if I get in trouble at school for running down the hallway, it isn't just dad corrects you and stop running down the hallway. It, it's it's this whole thing of, you know, you have sh- you brought shame upon our house. You know what I mean? Like it kind of happens a little bit when you're when you're a PK. And so th- there was that. But but I do. My dad loved me. And, was, and we had a good family. And my mom, my dad were great. And my brother and I have a brother and sister, both younger. They were great as well. But dad was around, but also not around, if that makes sense. It does. And to be clear, PK stands for pastor's kid. Yeah, yeah. Pa- preacher's kid. Is preacher's kind of, kid. Yeah, they, they, they always call us PKs. <laughs> and so in theory, I mean, that could steer you one of two directions, right? If you grow up around things of God and it's it's walked out for you in a healthy way, it could perhaps bring you closer to God. It could also, in theory, turn you off. How did you, what, what was your relationship with God like then growing up? It was great when I was young and it was great through middle school. And then when I got into high school, we moved, we moved from Manchester, Georgia, a little small town to Seymour, Tennessee. And I hated it. That was mad. And so I was mad that we moved. I lost all my friends and all of those things. And I, the, the culturally it was very different. Like in Manchester, it's small, but everything's kind of built on a square and on a grid and it's done a little bit like old school. And that was a town that wasn't as affected by the civil war in Georgia. You know what I mean? So everything kind of was still old. And, and and on those types of grids and every every kid skated and every you know skateboarding was a big deal especially back then and then we moved to Seymour Tennessee where there aren't curbs to skate and there and everybody was into country music and things like that and it's funny now I look back on it I was so mad at my parents for moving me into that place culturally now culturally that's one of my favorite things about Tennessee yeah. is the people so <laughs> yeah uh, but when I was young I, I got angry about it and and honestly man I I stopped praying. But the but you know somewhere after the ninth grade I stopped praying I stopped spending time with God I stopped just worshiping God Dad used to always bring that up to me that you know you used to always just I would just walk in your room and I could or by your room and I could hear you praising God by yourself singing songs and you don't do that anymore and I mean look this and one of the things that I try to tell my daughter now guys and I'm sure you know that if you look at most people in life the biggest challenge they have is how they handle their negative emotions. Mm. Almost every look, I mean, some people have real problems of they're being abused or something like that that happens. But for the rest of us, it's how are you handling your negative emotions and what happens when you do them and do you allow them to drive you to do something that's not beneficial for you or your family? Yeah. And I did not handle those negative emotions well. I started doing drugs and then I kept doing drugs and I kept doing drugs and I kept doing drugs and it, it kind of went down a really, really bad spiral, but it all went back to I was mad at my mom and dad for moving me from where my friends were to a place where I didn't know anyone. So it was a response to an actual event that you just pointed to more so than just adolescent hormones and woe is me and some of those feelings that I think teenagers generally have, or maybe it was compounded then by the fact that you also moved at about that time. Yeah. Well, the, the woe was me. Like nothing happens in a vacuum, right? So my woe was me was because we moved. Uh, there was that. And then I, so I played football and there was at least that I had sports. And so I still had that here. And so I was at that time, I'm using just a little bit. Well, then I had an injury, a back injury and I couldn't play sports. 
And that, especially like once you lose purpose, it's gone. You know what I mean? Like, so, so for me who was experimenting that, that turned in from experimenting to frankly, just getting high was my full-time job at that point. So, and that's in uh, high school. That was in high school. Yeah. That was, that was in in the 10th grade. And so I, yeah, it, it, look, I mean, I went from, and it it was quick too. And a lot of people, you'll find this with people with addictive personalities, I went from I'm on the academic team where like the scholars bowl team and things like that to he's about to flunk out of school like that, like, like in, in literally a six month period that happened. Yeah. And that's one thing I was going to ask too, is, you know, we're, as we're talking about kind of the contributors, how much of that is genetics, how much of that is personality. I'm definitely one that has that addictive personality type. And one of the things that I've found is, um, and I don't know how, if, if I can articulate this very clearly, but it's almost as if our our virtues and our vices are kind of the same thing, but it's the, whether it's a virtue or a vice is kind of dependent on what is the motivation behind it or what is the spirit behind it? Is the spirit, is it the spirit of the Lord? Are we are we going to be addicted towards good things of ministry and worship and praise, et cetera? Or are we going to be addicted to, you know, bad things, drugs or, you know, pornography or whatever. And so part of that, you know, part of my curiosity is looking at your father as a pastor saying, Hey, he works, you know, he works 70, 80 hours a week. How much of that do you think is, you know, a genetic disposition to where maybe your father has some of those same you know, tendencies or addictive personalities, but in his life, he's using it towards, you know, devotion to ministry, devotion to the church, you know, et cetera. Any, any thoughts on that? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's, I can become addicted to anything. And sure. I think my father's the same way. My, my grandparents were the same way. My grandfather had alcohol issues and then got saved and beat it. You know what I mean? My dad, yeah. same thing, drug and alcohol problems. My dad was a really good football player. Was going to go play at Virginia Tech, and ended up getting in a motorcycle wreck and hurting himself. And then he just went ahead. But d- dad would at least had a little more work ethic than I did. He he graduated. He just said, "Okay, I'm going to graduate high school early, and then go move to Jersey with my cousins. We're just going to drink beer and you know what I mean, run a snowplow, and that's what I'm going to do for the for the you know until, until he had an encounter with God." But it, you, what you just mentioned, I can, I can become addicted to anything, and, and it's FIFA. Like literally, I've had to take two years ago FIFA 20. Uh, or 21 when it came out, I was like, I'm playing this five hours a night and sleeping three hours. Yeah. So I literally just had yeah. to take the thing out of the PlayStation and break it and throw it in my trash can and say, <laughs> yeah. no more. Like, so, right. so what I've, and, and people say that to me now as well. They're like people who knew me then and then now know me. And they're like, wait, you just replaced. So instead of cocaine, it's coffee and, and volume weightlifting. And I'm like, yeah, pretty much, man. You know what I mean? That's, that's the, but I have to be careful with everything because I can legit become addicted to work or anything like that in the world. I, I think there are a lot of people who addicts that become addicted to religion. And I don't mean the relationship with God. I mean, the, you know, the, the all of the religious rituals that we do around that in church. You know what I mean? I, I've seen a lot of people with that. And I'm like, all right, what happens when that pastor says something you don't like, though? And are you are you going to turn right back to the other thing? And so that's the thing that I try to like in, in trying to work with people in uh, recovery right now. That's the thing I try to get to is is getting to a piece where you understand, look, man, you can become addicted to anything. None of that's good. But if you do have to choose, it's almost like what Paul says about, frankly, sex, where Paul's just like, look, 
no, you shouldn't have sex. You should devote everything to, to God. But if you can't, then go get a wife, right? Yeah. <laughs> I look at that as like addictions a little bit like that. Look, you shouldn't yeah. be addicted to anything. But if you're going to be addicted to something, <laughs> me lifting weight six days a week is yeah. better than me having a problem with cocaine and drugs and alcohol and things like that. Part of it is recognizing then that aspect of your own innate character and figuring out how to channel it, how to control it. And yet God can also set us free. And I remember, and frankly, part of what prompted me to want to have this conversation with you, Will, is you you, you made this statement at one point uh, when I was listening to you talk about how you, I mean, you said, look, I was I was a homeless drug addict living in my car. And then God, the father set me free. Mm. Tell us about that. How, how does that happen? What was that process like for you? And what are the mechanics of that? I mean, we hear, okay, God saved me. God, God set me free. But like, literally, how did he do that? How did you then come through this, this wasteland period of addiction? You have a successful career. I mean, I, I, I mentioned that Will uses his voice for a living. You're, you're a talk show host on the local radio. Like you, you're successful by all by all, you know, anybody who would look at you, how do you get to that point after being at the low of the low? I, I honestly, it's Joel, Joel two. And I believe it's Joel two, 21, 22. I will restore unto you the years that the locusts have eaten. Hmm. And if you look at what the locusts are in the old Testament, they're a curse, right? And then and the Bible also tells us there's no curse causeless. What I wanted to do, because I understood when I played football that my 5-3-40 time was not going to get me to the National Football League, um, I would ride around with my dad sometimes because there were times that that being a, a pastor didn't pay the bills. So we'd have other jobs. And so we had a merchandising job one time for for a hardware company. And I would, during the summer, I would ride around with him and we would listen to sports talk radio. And my dad and I fought all the time. And so that, but when we were talking about sports, those fights and those arguments became kind of con- constructive, if that makes sense, right? They were fun as opposed to the fact that we butted heads became almost a good thing, right? And and we enjoyed that we butted heads during those moments. And so that's what I wanted to do was become a sports talk radio host. And what's cool about God is I, I, and I'm, and I'm glossing over a lot of the, the, the process of getting there, but I'm literally in the show that used to be on. And I would listen to with him when I was in his truck. I'm the I'm the co-host of it now. I'm the guy and I'm the guy in the seat that is the show that made me want to do this when I was 14 years old. That's amazing. And and, and it's totally God because I I'll be I, guys, I don't have the education to have the job that's required to have the job. I don't I don't have it. And I, you know, I stopped playing football once I got hurt and then got on drugs. And once I recovered, I, I never went back to sports. You know, I just kept doing drugs. And so, yeah, I, I was in high school and I wanted to be a sports talk radio host playing football. I had a back injury. And um, what what happens specifically when this happens with me is my right leg doesn't really work particularly well when I have the back injury uh, because of a disc issue. And so I, I couldn't play for a while. And then I started really, really doing drugs and I kept doing drugs, kept doing drugs. I had, I mean, I cannot tell you, like looking back on my life, the way that God put people there to try to get me to get clean, there was... I mean, teachers who tried to barter with me and do anything. My parents tried everything under the sun. There was a football coach that even once I got kicked out of high school, because I did get kicked out, uh, I I smoked the joint outside of the chorus room. And uh, and after all the other things that I had done, that was kind of the key. And I mean, and I smoked. Really, what they caught me with is I smoked a cigarette to cover up the smell afterwards. 
and that's that's where they caught me with smoking the cigarette and then all it all came out and i finally at that point they kicked me out of school um i even had a coach at that point though it's at seymour high school who came to who what went to a historically black college because i'm white and white people that go to historically black colleges usually get a free ride and so he was like look if you just go get your ged your act and sat scores are good you can walk on, go to this school, walk on at this school in Florida, and you don't count against their scholarship count, and you get a chance to go play college football at a D1 level if you'll just get it together here, man. And I didn't do it, you know? Like, so, you know, I'd go get jobs, and then I'd end up not showing up to work, and I, I'd do well for a while, and then, you know, bank a little bit of money, and then I would, uh, <laughs> I, I would, you know, go on a bender and wake up one night, and I spent three grand, and I don't know what I spent it on, and you know what I mean? Or... I'd be at a bar and I would come to with a key in my hand and Coke in my nose. And I'm in a bar stall with a, four people. I don't know who they are. And I don't know how I got to that point because I was blackout drunk uh, at the time. And this kept happening. And, and I, you know, my parents, I would come home and I'd be trashed. I got to the point too, then where I stopped working and I would steal from my, my family. And it got to the point for a while, my parents would have to lock up our valuables because I would steal them. I mean, just point blank. I, I would steal the, their stuff. I remember walking by and go to the bathroom one day from my bedroom and my dad is laying on his bed. And my dad's a big man. My dad was a, my dad was a really big man. He's about 6'2", 280, big dude. And he's just weeping uncontrollably on the bed. I knew it was about me. And I eventually they, could, they put me out of the house and they had to. You know what I mean? It got to the point where I'm stealing things from my brother and my sister as well. And so they, they didn't want to put me on the street, but they put me on the street. And my, my grandfather gave me this old 1970s hoopty Pontiac Bonneville that he had. And so that I at least wasn't on the street. So I was living in that Bonneville and I would get some money and I would get an apartment and that I would do the same, the same process would have just a cycle that would happen over and over again. I'd be out of, you know, in an apartment for three or four months then be like, okay, everything's fine. I go to a bar, I can, I can have one beer. And then the next thing you know, Two weeks later, I'm getting kicked out of my apartment and you know, getting evicted, and I'm you know thousands of dollars in the hole, and then I'd be back on the street. And eventually, the car got towed, and so when the car got towed, because I parked it in the same public space too, for too many days in a row, and when I and, and really I I drive it and then I park it back in that space, and so but I didn't know you know if they walk by if they drive by and see that same car in the same place, even if it's a public space, so many days in a row, eventually they're going to tow it. And I told her I was on the street. So I had what was in my backpack at the time. The rest of my belongings were inside out of that car. And I was just living on the street. And so I would try to get jobs and work and things like that. There was a stretch where I didn't have shoes because I I was wearing uh, flip-flops at the time that I, or like sandals at one, at, at one time. It was Adidas slides is what I was wearing. But and it, and it blew out on me because I was walking the streets for so many miles per day. And those Adidas slides are not built for that. And I literally just had to spend the next couple of days without shoes on the streets in Knoxville. And Man. then, so one night, um, I, you know, I, again, I, I got a job after that. I got a I went to, you know, got some money up, went, got a job, went to a Goodwill, got some shoes, things like that. And like, and built back up, got into an apartment, was out again. And I was on the street again and my grandmother was in the hospital. And so I wanted to go see her. And then I kind of got word from my family, don't go see her. She doesn't want to see you in the situation you're in right now. It hurts her to see you like this. And so I couldn't go see my grandmother, and that hit me a lot. And that really kind of hit me hard. 
And so I was walking through downtown Knoxville about 2 a.m. that night, and these dudes start chasing me to steal my shoes because when you're homeless, that's something people homeless people do to each other is they'll steal each other's shoes. And so I decided, okay, I'm going to – I ran from them, and I was, you know, again, getting chased, so I didn't feel particularly safe. So, But you know what it says in Proverbs, right? Raise a, raise a child up in the way they should go, and in the end, they will not depart from it. Right. Doesn't mean they won't depart from it for a stretch, but it means in the end they're going to come back to it. Yeah. And uh, so I ran to this church, this Church Street United Methodist Church, which is on Henley Street in Knoxville, next to the Henley Street Bridge. And I climbed into the bushes there to sleep, so no one could see me. But I wanted to be near the church so I could feel safe. You know, it just made me feel safe being there. So that night I got out of the out for you know I'm just laying there and I realized, okay, what am I doing? Now? This is eight years at this point that I had been on the street. And on and off, and I got and I and I got it together for a little while, and I'd blown it. Got it together for a little while, and blown it over and over again. And my thought was, if I was ever going to beat this, I would have already done it. So, what is the point of continuing to live? Hmm. I climbed out from the bushes, and I walked over to Henley Street Bridge. And there's like, if you if you don't know Knoxville, there's the the Tennessee River. It goes the Henley Street Bridge goes over the Tennessee River, and there's a there's a highway that runs right next to it, Nayland Drive. And I was, I remember there had been a story a few years earlier where someone jumped off of another bridge that it went over the Tennessee river and they didn't die. They, they were paralyzed. And I was like, well, I don't want that to happen. So let me make sure I hit the pavement when I go. But, and so I just kind of said, okay, I'm here. I'm going to go. Um, it's over. I've blown it. And I just thought I'll give one last ditch effort to scream out to God. And so I did in the middle of downtown Knoxville, screamed to the top of my lungs at like 3, 3 a.m., 3.30 a.m. at this point, screamed to the top of my lungs, if you want my life, take it. Mm. And nothing happened. And I thought, okay, here we go. And I, I'm a tall dude. And so I have long legged it anyway. So I stuck my legs up on the, on the handrail there at the, at the bridge. And I'm about to jump over. And about that time, this gust of wind hits me and knocks my hat off of my head. And it flies into the middle of the street. And just kind of instinctively, I always make the joke that, you know, if you're going to kill yourself, you need your hat. But really, honestly, it was, it was instinctive. I just turned around and went and like kind of ran and grabbed my hat really quickly because it blew off of my head. And about the time I touched that hat, like I felt God say, not like out loud, but like audibly, but inside of me, if you want to kill yourself, I can't stop you. But if you want me to change your life, come on. Mm. And God changed my life for that from that moment. Yeah. Just completely amen. changed changed my life. But I'll tell you what it was. Like, so I, I ended up walking off and I'm walking through Knoxville and or you know, through the campus area in Knoxville. And back then everybody paid cash. So I would go to the drive-thru windows before they opened for breakfast in the morning because people would drop 30 it's cents changed. here, 20. Yeah, yeah, yeah change. So you, I mean, honestly, you get four or five bucks by going to, you know, five or six drive-thru restaurants that people had dropped the change outside of the outside of the drive-through window and didn't want to climb another car to get 60 cents so i i went and did that and I, I run into this girl who knew my brother and she used to be one of my neighbors in one of the places i got evicted from and she said hey your, your brother's looking for you have you talked to him and i'm like I, I have not so she's like well you should find him he's really trying to find you so i go to a pay phone at the rocky top market on cumberland avenue in knoxville right near ut's campus and i call my brother and my brother says, hey, mom's trying to find you. Have you talked to her yet? I'm like, no, I haven't talked to mom. And, so, and and I should tell you, my mom asked me not to come to her birthday dinner that year. And like it was kind of a, you know, same, same reason my grandmother didn't want me at the hospital. And so I called my mom and she said, where are you? I'm coming to get you. And I told her where I was and she came and got me. 
drove me to their house and had me get a shower, gave me some of my dad's clothes, and then just let me sleep. Because when you're on the street, you don't sleep, really. So, I mean, you might get two or three hours here or there. But, I mean, and especially when you're there for years, it can go on for a while. So, the fact that you're crazy just gets amplified because of the lack of sleep. Yeah. But my mom woke me up that evening, fed me, had me come in the living room with her and my dad. And she just said to me, God told me to serve you. Hmm. And it broke me. Wow. Love, love that I didn't deserve from the people that I heard hurt the most in the world and frankly betrayed and stole from changed my heart. And my dad, who I told you guys I, I would butt heads with him all the time, my dad walked over to me and he says, God told me to repent to you for leading my son to wrath. Hmm. And that did it, man. That that changed everything. And it, and it, here's the thing, though. I would like to tell you that I stayed clean after that. I, I didn't. I I could stay clean for two weeks, and I ran out of the house and got and relapsed. But by that point, like what my parents did was, you have three square a day. You have the Bible. You have praise and worship. You have sermon d- d- CDs and DVDs and things like that. And that's what you'll listen to. And that's what you have. It's you and God. And but by that point, like I had enough word in me. Does that make sense? Where I built up like the word deposit inside of my mind. So my mind was becoming renewed. Yeah. And so when I realized, used to, what would happen is I would relapse and I'd say, oh, well, I've blown it. And so what, what's the point at this point? I might as well just keep going. And at that point, though, there's something about just reading a righteous man falls seven times, but gets up eight. And it made me realize. Oh man, I I can keep doing this, right? And and I also just the the parable where Jesus talks about first the blade, then the ear, then the full kernel in the ear. And it made me realize in the kingdom of God, everything's a process. You know what I mean? Like it's it's built for it to be a process, not yeah. a light switch. So two weeks became three months, three months became six months, six months became two years, two years became never again. Yeah, awesome. And and what what got me to the never again is what I told you guys. It was God showed me in his word at that point that from Genesis to Jesus, he brings up legacies and he brings up fathers. And is this the kind of father that you want to be and do you want to leave a legacy for yourself and for your family? That's awesome. Let's talk more about the fatherhood piece then. Uh, and, and let's talk a little bit about how your parents did show up, your father specifically, perhaps while you were in the throes of addiction. And you've You've mentioned a lot of it, but but here's where I'm coming from in this. What is the father's role? To me, it seems like there's this balancing act between you know rescuing our child versus enabling the child. Um, it sounds like you always had a place to come home to, and yet at some point they kicked you out. There was a period before we had formally adopted our boys where we were sort of watching things happen from afar, knowing that their biological parents were in the throes of addiction as well. And at one point, one of them, I'm not going to obviously give names or be too specific, uh, but one of them ends up in jail. And in my mind, again, this is, this is the outsider who's never dealt with any of this stuff. And I'm, you know, coming at it from probably a very judgmental place. I feel like I've, I've grown since this time, but my thought was, you know, just let them, let them rot in jail. That's what they need. Like they need the consequences of their actions. Like you, the father, you, the mother have always bailed them out. They need to pay the consequences or they will never learn, so to speak. 
But now as a father, my father's heart's like, I want to, like, I don't want my kids to suffer. Of course, I would bail them out of jail because I love my kids. I don't want my kids in jail. Like I've now experienced it from the other side, but then I'm also like, yeah, but is that really the best thing for them? That may not be what they need. So my question for you, Will, is looking back on it, what did your father do well during that period? What might he have done differently? What do you feel like you needed from your father? And is there anything our earthly father can really do when ultimately maybe it's the heavenly father's job to rescue you? I think the thing that a father needs is discernment. So like there's it's Proverbs 26, right? And and I've always that that verse has always gotten me because a friend of mine that I'd when I got clean and tried to say, you know, like and he actually has gotten clean and he's gotten saved since then. It's good dude. But at the time when he was struggling with things with addiction and stuff like that, that once I got clean, I tried to, you know, help him. He would bring up Proverbs 26, 4 and 5. And the first verse is, uh, answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him. And the next verse is, answer a fool according to his folly, yeah. uh, so, uh, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Yeah. I think it requires discernment because my parents needed to put me out so I could feel this at the time. So, so I, don't, like, I, I don't know that I'm a believer that there is tough love. I think there's love and sometimes love is tough. Hmm. And so sometimes like my parents, it was the right thing to put me out. They probably should have done it earlier and maybe they wouldn't have been as bitter and it wouldn't have been as ugly and things like that. Had they, had they put me out earlier to feel this? Um, so I could feel the hurt of that and understand the consequences of what I was doing. But at the same time, it was the love of my parents that I didn't deserve when I knew I didn't deserve it. That's the thing that changed me, right? That led to repentance. And especially right after having an encounter with God like that, it was just the back to back of that was just so much that loves the weapon. And I think that's the biggest thing that we miss in the church and misunderstand in the church. If you want someone to, to change, love is the weapon. And sometimes when someone's doing something that's abusive, like I was, I was stealing, you know, from them. So if someone's doing something that's ab- that's abusive, you don't accept that. But the weapon is always love. And because if, I mean, how many times people have ever changed their minds because they were out debated? It doesn't happen a whole lot, or, or we're proven. You know what I mean? That's we, how many studies have shown that when you prove someone that they're to someone that they're wrong, they become even more galvanized in their opinion. Yeah. Um, <laughs> for my dad, I think he probably should have put me out earlier. Dad was also a real emotional guy, and I'm not an emotional guy. And so, dad would, and and maybe that's the difference in Boomer and Gen X, right? Is that my dad was everything was really emotional, and he would always like try. He would appeal to me, and we all do this at times. He would appeal to me with what he needed as opposed to meeting me where I was with it. And I don't know that it would have worked anyway, if I'm just being honest, but, but what's a bit, what could have been a better strategy in hindsight? And I'm armchair quarterbacking this a little bit. I think that might've been a better strategy has come to me with what I need, not what he needs. But if you're in the throes of heartbreak, watching your son throw his life away, I don't have a lot of criticisms for him. If that, if that makes sense, other than maybe this other strategy would have worked or he probably should have put me out earlier before he was as bitter as he was. Does addiction run in the family? Is it, is it genetic? I know uh, your daughter is, is adopted, so she may not have the same addictive genetics, but what, what's your message to her and how do you, how do you break the cycle? How do you break the quote unquote generational curse if it is a biological addiction thing? So I have sort of the opposite situation of you maybe where 
I've never battled the addiction, but I now have adopted two boys whose biological parents do. Do I worry about them? Do I? What's my message to them? Does that make sense? What, what's your message to your daughter? And what, what do you know about sort of the generational legacy piece of addiction and then how to break that generational addiction? Uh, so honestly, I so my brother has dealt with this as well. And my brother's handled a whole lot better than I have. And my brother, it will go poorly when, so my brother is, he's vegan and he, and he rides his bike probably 10 to 20 miles a day right now. And honestly, <laughs> Diet and exercise, F- finding a plan that you're on with diet and exercise, I don't know why, but it seems to be the most effective thing that I've seen. But it, it in the years that I've been able to, like I didn't tell my story for a long time, and then one time I was filling in for the Howard Hilton Hill show, and I just felt like God said, give your testimony today on the air. And, and just not something that's done on corporate uh, corporate broadcast stations these days is that someone just takes 10 minutes to give their testimony on the air. Yeah. And but it, But since then, I mean, thousands of people have reached out to me for help. So, because I've done, you know, other places have had me come out and things like that and speak it to their groups. There's always one thing whenever I'm working with someone, what's the emotional thing you're trying to cover up, right? Like for me, the the verse that changed it for me was uh, only a fool despises correction. Yes. Because I always felt like whenever I did something wrong, I was bad and I would beat myself up to a point where... It was like there's something wrong with me because I missed a single question on a test or I missed a blocking assignment in, in, in football or like I really, really, really beat myself up. And that changed everything was knowing that was hearing that where the desire went away all of a sudden. Right. Now, I still was stupid and went and did it a few more times, but until God kind of showed me the legacy thing. But he changed my taste with that word where he took the taste for drugs and alcohol and to need to numb this thing inside of me. He took that out of my mouth. And so I I think that, so for me, whenever I do this every time, whenever somebody comes to me, if I'm sitting with them and we're talking about, okay, how did you get clean? This is what I'm going through. Yeah. What's the emotional trigger? And I just ask them point, but especially once you're older, you know, as you're like 28, you know what I mean? Like, or, you know, like above 25 and I can have a real adult conversation with someone. I'll just ask them, what's the emotional trigger? Cause there's always one, right? I had a, I had a friend who died last year and he OD'd. And he ran a prison ministry that was wildly successful, was dating a woman, and was she wanted to kind of settle down more, and he wanted to grow the ministry further. So she just said, hey, this is that we don't need to be, be together, and it's okay. And he was doing fine, and then he saw her on a date when he drove and pulled into a restaurant parking lot, and threw all of it away, drove and bought heroin, and OD'd in the parking lot of a fast food restaurant in Knoxville, and battled that for forever but it was that it was i blew this and i should have settled down with her and i made this mistake and regret regret was his thing and he never beat it you know what i mean like he he died and so i asked that problem that thing every time what's the emotional trigger and it can be anything and the tough part is sometimes people feel like it shouldn't be their emotional trigger and i have to get them to understand and it doesn't matter what it should be this is the reality is that's what it is so let's beat it, especially if it's stupid. If it's something you think is stupid, it's going to become even easier for us to beat. So just let's come up with the, let's find out what the emotional trigger is. And let's, let's understand that's coming. You also have to understand what there, there is a, like I, I explained it to people there, you guys know there's a devil. So if you have an emotional trigger that will pull you back down a, a path like that, that easily, that's the first thing that's coming. You know what I mean? So some guys it's cheating. You know, I cheated on my wife and I lost my family. Because I, I couldn't control myself sexually. And I'm like, well, 
let me assure you, after we have this conversation, I will say to him that exactly the way you want a woman to show up is that's how what's about to show up and offer you sex. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> it's just, it all, I don't know why it always works that way, but your emotional triggers coming when you're trying to get better. And so that was, if you can get people to treat the emotional trigger, whatever it might be for them, it just becomes a lot. It doesn't mean that, look, they're not going to bat a thousand. And I can't tell you the number of times, guys, I've been at a church giving my testimony and they want, after God, I had the encounter with God, they want the story to sound like, oh, and he never used drugs again. I mean, multiple <laughs> times, people, have, pastors have run onto the stage and grabbed the mic out of my hand. Man. Literally, that's happened to say, and he never used drugs again, and everybody's wooing, and I'm like, that's not true. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> so, and I, so if I can get people to understand two things. One, what, what's the emotional trigger? Let's find it. Let's, let's deal with it. Let's confront it. Two, you're going to mess up again. And when you mess up, you don't, you don't start over, right? And, and it, which can be tough because in 12-step, they kind of do have you start over. And 12-step's good. I'm not ripping 12-step. It, it can absolutely be something that's good. So, I, and, and I, I know thousands of people that have gotten clean from it. But getting them to understand, when, like, whom the sun sets free is free indeed. And, like, I was just doing, working with a guy at our church on Sunday that he relapsed two weeks ago and his family put him out. And he used to be a drug addict. Now he was thriving and doing really, really well. And he started using again for about a week and a half. And he came to me at church and needed prayer. And he was just like, I just maybe I'm just always an addict. I'm like, no, dude, you're done. God already delivered you from this. You're already free. Which Because if you were an addict, it'd be okay that you went back to it. You're not an addict anymore. You're done. We've received that by faith and prayer. So for you to pick back up drugs is is unacceptable because you're not an addict. You may be, you have addictive qualities, right? Like, but we don't, heroin's not one of those anymore because God set you free from it. And, and if I can get people to understand that, I, all, I am already free and then deal with their emotional trigger. I mean, like this, I'm not special as God doing it, but we would have been able to help over at least over a thousand people because of those two things. You know what I mean? Understanding the emotional trigger and understanding that the moment you receive it in prayer, you were already free. So don't go back to to your vomit like a dog. I I filter all of this through obviously my own lens of being a father to my boys who are the ages that they are and and wanting them on the front end to avoid the addiction in the first place. So I hear everything you're saying, my question is how do we how do we head it off at the pass? You talked about how you did not handle the negative emotions well when you were in your early high school years. I have a, an older boy who's entering those high school years. And yes, as a 25-year-old, you might be able to tap into, hey, I can recognize the emotional trigger because my prefrontal cortex is fully developed, right? But as a as a 11, 12, 13-year-old boy, you have these emotions and you don't even know what they are. You don't know how to pinpoint them. This certainly isn't at fault. No, that's not a problem. I'm not dealing with that. No, but son, you're you're in a negative downward spiral. What do we do as a father? How do we step in on the front end? How do we help our kids pinpoint those negative emotions and deal with them in a healthy way? And maybe it's just a matter of just building them up and speaking truth to them consistently so that that becomes their overriding voice. But I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that. Maybe yours too, Perry. Yeah, just, just thinking about that aspect of it, the front end piece. 
I, I think it's the, I think the, the biggest, if you look at right now where we are with men, right? Especially young men, girls are two to one more likely to graduate college than a, than a boy right now. Um, girls are twice as likely to own a home by the age of 30 as a, as a single man right now. Like it's just, there's no bigger lie that I think we've told men, and this is going to be probably something that's really controversial. And I apologize for bringing it up on your podcast, but I've never brought it up publicly, but I'm going to, um, the biggest lie we've told boys and men is that it matters how you feel. And now it doesn't mean you don't have the emotions, right? And so I think that for me, when I look back on it, I think that I, if I was the father in that situation, knowing what I know now, and, it, and again, it doesn't mean you don't have them. It just means they're not the boss and they don't control what you do. I mean, you do what's required. You know what I mean? Like you do what you need to do. You still do the right thing. I have all the negative emotions in the world but I don't get to act them out, right? There are times that people say things to me in business that I want to punch them in the face. I don't get to, you know what I mean? <laughs> like, yeah. it doesn't matter that, that I feel like punching them in the face and I'm mad. I, I am still mad. It doesn't change reality that I'm mad. And I think that's one of the things that I would love to see us do and have this conversation with young boys is, or with boys as they're growing up is to one, learn to control their emotions or control their reaction to their emotions. And the other thing would be to get them to understand, yes, you have emotions, but those emotions are never, they're in the car with you, but they don't ever drive the car. Joyce Meyer always says, I have my emotions, but they don't, it doesn't get a vote. You know what I mean? And so if it's not powered by love, then it's probably a negative emotion and it doesn't, yes, it's there. Let's, let's deal with it. Let's confront it. Let's not hide it. Let's deal with it. Let's confront it. Let's process it, but understand we still do what's required. We still do the right thing. And, and I'll tell you the thing that taught me that was the army. You know what I mean? You don't have a choice. I mean, I got this guy that's, that, that, you know, I'm a big guy and I have this guy who's half my size screaming in my face, calling me everything in the entire world. And I want to choke him out, but I don't get to. Yeah. And it helped me process my emotions really, really, really well. Once I went in. Yeah, that's huge. That's awesome. I, I, uh, can, I bolt up to that hundred percent, you know, validate. Sure. The feelings exist. You know, we're not saying that you know, the, the boy's heart or the boy's feelings are insignificant or they don't count or they don't matter or, you know, whatever. That's not the point at all. The point is, uh, the feelings don't get, they don't get a say, they don't get a seat at the table. You know, they, they can exist and then you do what's required. You do what's right. You do what you're supposed to do based off of, um, intellect, logic, sound thinking, wisdom, God's call in your life, God's plan, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm, that really resonates with me. I feel like, gosh, we could probably do a whole podcast on, on just that topic alone. I think it's fantastic. It's certainly worth uh, a deeper exploration into. And then I think too, to go back to your question, Brett, and, and my take on it is, um, another part of it is just to go back to that discernment, you know, how do we get in front of it with our boys? Well, I think it involves being actively or not just our boys, but with our kids being actively engaged with our kids. You know, we need to have that relationship. We need to have that time. We need to be able to, as the father, look into their hearts. And we, if they might not have the processing capacity yet as a child to understand the negative emotion that pops up, that might be a trigger. But if we have a deep and meaningful relationship with our kids, we ought to have a little bit of insight and wisdom into that for them if they can't have it yet, right? 
And so I think a lot of it is, is our discernment as a father. And that comes from, you know, a few things, one time with our kids and understanding them, you know, and it not being about like Rick Brewer said a long time ago, is this about me or is this about my kid? Right. It, the things need to be about our kids and, um, and our own connection with our heavenly father, you know, that we're praying for the Holy spirit to give us wisdom and understanding as we try to navigate these waters with our, with our children, especially children that we know have a propensity for addiction. And in your case, Brett adopted kids that, you know, have that propensity. In my case, my own children have that genetic uh, disposition because I have it. And so I think that gives us a little bit of a heads up if we know that, okay, they're, they're probably wired towards this. So let's be intentional uh, about how we approach it, if that makes sense. And one thing I would say too, to, if I can add to that, Perry, yeah, your kids are going to do your relationship with them and how you react to their mistakes. They're going to, they're often going to look at that. That's how God has reacted to their mistakes. Mm, yeah. And so one thing that I've had to learn is if I'm blowing up at my kid, then she's going to think God's mad at her when she's done something wrong. If I got mad when it happens. And so understanding of, well, that's stupid. You know what I mean? Like you shouldn't have done that. How can we correct this? Right. Let's, let's talk this out and correct it. I would also say a, a strong background in the word is like, we're going to sit down at the word this many days a week for 10, 15 minutes. Even when you're a teenager, you're living in this house. This is the rent. Your rent is we sit in the word and an understanding of relationship with God and having that relationship where they know when it, no matter how bad it is, I can come to them. And I think that would be something as well that sets them off on the right foot. Cause again, even if they, even if they deviate from it in the end, yep. They'll not depart from it. Yeah. One final story from my perspective, and then I'll let you have the last word, Will, about this discernment piece. Sometimes fathers do have to make the tough decisions and do the hard things. And that's where we have to step up as men. In your case, Will, it was your father literally kicking you out of the house at a time when you needed it. And like you said, maybe it needed to have been done earlier. I had a moment last week. And again, I'm I'm far from perfect. I 90% of the time miss the cues, but but I picked up on a cue this time, I think. And, and I just want to share this story. My older son, Jackson, was sort of in a negative emotional downward spiral. And he had been sort of mopey for a few days and just saying some negative things. And why, why do I even need to be happy and, and these types of things? And we let him lay on his bed after school for a couple of days. And, and eventually I was like, it's just no, like I'm just not going to allow this just to continue to happen and perpetuate. And so after school one day, I was like, Jackson, come on, we're going to go work out together. Oh, I'm tired. I don't feel like it, blah, 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 blah. I said, no, yeah, I mean, we're going to do it. And so we talked about why and all the things you said, well, you know, endorphins, and it's good to get out and stretch the legs and lungs and all this type of stuff. And, and he generally likes to do that with me. It's not like it was a punishment for him. He just, he wasn't in the mindset of doing it. He was one of those dark negative mindsets. And so, so I got him out there and then we're sort of working out and I said, Hey, anything you want to talk about? And I just use this as an opportunity to speak and and then it totally turned into this this converse, this deep conversation, and he shared some things, and he opened up his heart to me, and I pressed a little bit. He's like, I don't want to talk about it, and I like made him talk about it, and and we just had conversation, and then we ran, and we sweat, and we had this experience together, and all this type of stuff. And I kid you not, he was a totally different kid that night, and has been different ever since that moment. Like He just needed, I think, to process some things and get some things out, and he needed me as his father to grab him by the shirt and like yank him out of that 
that place, that mindset. And again, I'm not patting myself on the back, but I do think that's a moment where maybe I did discern a few things and I was willing to make him, he was mad at me. He didn't want to work out. Why are you asking me these questions, dad? I don't want to talk just because you're, you're my son. I love you. We're going to talk about these things, like, because I care about you, you know, and that was the message to him. And he responded to that. And so that would be my encouragement to you, men, fathers listening, uh, have that discernment, know your kids, but then be willing to take some action, even if that action is uncomfortable. Well, as we wrap this up, I, uh, I certainly honor you and appreciate you for opening up your heart and, uh, and speaking truth, sharing your story that I have no doubt uh, is impacting men, tangible wisdom about how to how to speak into the lives of our kids, how to be there for them, how to, how to help deal with addiction, whether we see it in our own kids or men who might be listening to this struggling personally with seeds of addiction that they don't want to pass along to their families. As we wrap this up, any final thoughts, any final words for men who, who are trying to be good fathers and trying to navigate this whole addiction thing? Take the time and the word for yourself. What, like what you just said, you did, Brett, Brett is that one of the things I think that people um, don't want to do is they don't want to take the times for this. What you did, you took the time to go work out. You didn't send him to go work out, right? You took the time to do it with him. It, fatherhood and manhood, part of that is is modeling. And what am I modeling for my kids? What am I modeling for my wife? What am I modeling for my family? And uh, model that what you want from your kids, but it doesn't mean they're not going to deviate. But take the time and the word for yourself because discernment comes. Well, the more you spend time in the word, I always say that the, the, the word of God's like a pill where, like, you put a pill in your mouth and you swallow it, it goes in your stomach, but it spreads throughout through your entire body. You put the word of God into your eyes and into your mouth and into your mind, and it seems to spread to throughout your entire life. And so take right now, I think that especially after COVID, we've lost some time in the word. Probably a lot of people have, and a lot of people have lost time in prayer. And I would say get back into those two things first, set the foundation so that everything else can be built on top of that. And you can, and we can have the discernment to know what, to know when to be tough and when to be soft when it comes to love good word appreciate it we'll wrap this up here as always thank you for listening for following what we're doing uh certainly hope that we are blessing you on your own fatherhood journey continue to give us those five-star reviews uh thanks again to will west for for being our guest this week and we will look forward to coming with you again soon on a future episode of the faithful fatherhood podcast take care everyone oh,